All right, well, it was a while ago, but the last time we were together, we went through Second Samuel chapter 8, and it was uh, wars and people dying and horses dying, all kinds of things. They're not dying, but having their hamstrings cut. And so tonight, uh, we're going to look at Second Samuel chapter 9. Now, this is, uh, I entitled this, Eating at the Table of Grace. And that's what this is. It's, it's really a portrait of uh, God's grace to an individual in this chapter, as well as a picture of salvation for us. And so there's a couple outlines there. I, I put them all on there. Um, the first one talks about David's compassion. It talks about the man, the meeting, the mercy, if you're into that kind of stuff, and broke it down that way. And then the second one it talks about grace, and that's probably what we're going to focus on tonight. And we'll tie it up with a picture of, of the grace of God in salvation on the back there, because there's a lot of similarities between this chapter and our own salvation. So it's really a, a portrait of God's grace to the individuals in this chapter and us as well. Now remember what grace is. Grace, we define grace as getting something that we do not deserve, right? It's a positive. It's, you're, you're getting something positive that you don't deserve. And it's always emphasizing the positive aspect of, of that. So in our, in, our, in our Christian lives, when we come to Christ, we get something we don't deserve. What do we get? We get forgiveness when, in fact, we should receive the wrath of God because of our sinfulness. But God gives us his grace. And then we know mercy is kind of the negative aspect of grace, it's, it's not getting something that you do deserve. And there's a negative connotation to it. It's not that you're not getting an award that you deserve. That's not mercy. But it's, it has the idea of that you're not getting something you deserve in a negative way. So in our case, we deserve the wrath and judgment of God. But what does he do? Instead of giving us that, he doesn't give us that. He gives us grace. And that's revealed in his mercy it's withholding his wrath you could say having something negative you deserve to receive withheld from you that's how you might define mercy but we see grace in our lives all the time don't we i mean all around us i mean the air we breathe uh, the rain that waters the ground we live in our marriages you know men our wives are an example of God's grace to us. Probably all of us would say, <laughs> we don't deserve the wife we got. We, we married up, or whatever, however they say it. You know, it, it's, it's God's grace in our, our lives. Uh, and the, the, the fact that we get to live every day, the fact that we wake up in the morning and we can walk out of bed, and we can go to a sink and brush our own teeth. We don't have to have somebody else brush them for us. It's grace that we still have our teeth. You know, so I mean, all those things are, are gracious things that God gives us each and every day. They're examples of God's grace. Now, if you look at chapters of chapters 9 through 20 of 2 Samuel and chapters 2 through 8, uh, there's, a, there's a contrast here because with chapters 9 through 20, it's beginning a new section. Up to this point, things have been pretty positive. I mean, we've had some back and forth stuff, but for the most part, it's been pretty positive things going on. Well, it, it takes a, a negative turn here in, in chapter 9 and, and forward. Uh, things start to fall apart uh, in David's life and other situations that we're going to discover as we go through the book. 
it, it really re records failures, whereas the former section records successes. And so that's kind of a, an interesting comparison. And even in, in 1 Samuel, when we went through 1 Samuel, we had the same thing. If you, if you think about 1 Samuel chapters 7 through 12, it talks about Saul, King Saul, and it talks about all his triumphs. Remember? And then we got to chapter 13, verses, or chapter 13 ver through chapter 31, and what does it talk about? It talks about all his problems. So... It follows a similar pattern. But, but to understand what's going on in chapter 9, you really have to understand kind of the cast of characters here. I'll, I'll read through the chapter, and then we'll, we'll look at these cast of characters that's before us. So follow along in your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of, of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all into all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commanded his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. You have to understand here the cast of characters we're talking about. First of all, you have King David. And David said, at this time, King David has probably been king officially for about 15 years. Even though he was anointed king, remember, over what? Probably about 50 years ago. And Saul kind of retained the throne and they went back and forth and that whole battle ensued. Saul, who was on the throne initially, and then remember Samuel and, and the whole 
let them know, hey, this isn't going to continue. And so Saul was just trying to ink out every little <laughs> uh, amount of juice out of the, the kingship that he was holding on to. And, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. When people get a hold of power, they don't want to let it go. We see that in our own government. You see that in governments around the world. We see it here with King Saul. The problem with King Saul, and really what, what chapter 9 is all about, is a picture and, and it really shows us that, that Saul loved himself more than he loved God. He loved himself more than he loved God. He loved the power that he had as king. And I think when God, because it was, it was, that's how Saul was initiated, and that's how the throne was taken from him through God's commands and through his, his power, I, I think Saul literally wanted to kill God. I think that he was just that irate. And he couldn't kill God, so who would he want to kill? He wanted to kill God's representative, who was David. That's what he set his heart to do. And we saw that in the previous chapters. Well, remember, Saul had a son. His name was Jonathan. And this is the next man in line for the throne, right? He's the king's son. If the king dies, who takes over? He's the prince. The son does. And Saul, for the life of him could not understand the relationship that Jonathan and David had because it was it was a relationship built on spiritual love they they really cared for each other they really loved each other they watched out for each other and we went through all that and Saul couldn't understand that he just could not understand why Jonathan his son would not want to kill David because as long as David was alive his kingship was over and so Saul's problem was he loved power He really loved himself more than he loved God. And when you stop and you compare that to salvation, it gives you a wonderful picture of salvation. And really, when it comes down to someone trusting in Christ, the question is simply this. The The simple question is, do you love the Lord more than your own personal kingdom? That's what salvation is all about. If you're not willing to give up your kingdom, guess what? You're not welcome at the table of grace. You can't. It's inconceivable. And we live in a world today where people want to be king over their own little domain, over their own world. And there's no room at all at the table of grace for people who have that kind of mentality, that kind of heart. And that's why God says we have to be transformed. God has to change us. Now, Jonathan was kind of pulled in two different directions, as you can imagine. His dad is the king, David has been basically ordained as king, but he's still not king. Saul's holding on to the throne. They're going back and forth. Jonathan has a good relationship with David, and his dad's trying to kill him. So, I mean, you can imagine the turmoil going on in, in Jonathan's heart. He's, he's trying to be loyal to his father, and yet he realizes that, you know what, this king thing is over. I'm not going to be king. And he kind of gives that up. He realizes that, and that's why he really has this kinship with David. And so his kingdom was at war with David's kingdom. That's basically what it was, because his kingdom was the kingdom of his father. And he probably could have left that, but you don't do that. And he probably knew that in the end, you know what, I'm going to die in this struggle along the line. Jonathan probably understood that at some point, which he did. And so David 
had affection for Jonathan. Jonathan had affection for David. Saul had many sons, all who were killed in battle. We've been through those, all those, those battles, except one. In 2 Samuel 4, uh, Ishbosheth becomes king, kind of pronounces himself king, thinking, well, if I make myself king, then it won't go to David, and I'm sure the 12 tribes will rally around me uh, because I'm, I'm kind of in the line here. And unfortunately, what happens, the, king, the, the, the 12 tribes did not rally around the king. Instead, they rallied around David. <laughs> and we read how Ishbosheth actually gets assassinated by the temple guard. But Jonathan had a son, and guess who the son was? Melphibosheth is Saul's grandson and the way kingships work if there's anybody in the line doesn't matter where they're at we see that even with Korea you see it in different uh, systems of government that are set up that way today the line continues as long as there's someone alive in Saul's line that's really a threat that should be viewed as a threat to King David and so here's Mephibosheth and we, we read this story back in 2 Samuel 4 there. When all this stuff happened, it tells us that a nurse basically took Mephibosheth, who was five years of age at the time. At that age, then all the household was murdered. And by the grace of God, a nurse picked him up and ran out of the house. And she stumbled. And in that fall, broke both of his legs. So... When you think of that, you know, back then they didn't have all the, all the uh, pins and stuff that they can fix things. They didn't have x-rays. So, you know, you were crippled for life if that happened back then for the most part. And that's what happened to Mephibosheth. He was crippled from then on. This is Saul's grandson. So kind of a traumatized kid. He sees his whole family get murdered in front of him, and then he gets both of his legs break and he broken and he's crippled. Well, now, here we are 15 years later, roughly. Second Samuel 9, and we come to chapter 9, and we see the, probably one of the greatest illustrations of grace in all the Old Testament. It really is. You know, you can look at verses 1 through 4 and talk about the man and 5 to 6 in the meeting and mercy, but I want to focus on how this, this grace comes about. How is this grace expressed here? Why was David interested? Why in verse 1 does he say, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? If you read that, normally you would say, oh, he wants to know who his enemies are. Because if there's somebody left, he has a rightful heir to the throne, I've got to go take him out, because that's what they did. When a new king would come in, the other family pretty much was gone. They were either assassinated or whatever, because they would not be a threat at that point. And, you know, in an in a odd way, we see the same thing in our own government here in our own country, not to the point of assassination or anything, but when a new president comes in, what does he do? He doesn't just take the old president's cabinet, at least if he's smart, he doesn't, you know, and, and work with them. What's he do? He wipes them all out and says, I'm going to start fresh with my own cabinet. That's his right to do that. Well, that's what a king would do. And, you know, anybody left over would be kind of viewed as a, threat. Well, if you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 13, it tells us about this covenant 
that David and Jonathan established. And it says in verse 15, But should it please my father to do you harm, in other words, he knew that Saul was after him, after David, and, and this is Jonathan, uh, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, he's going to protect David, that you may go in safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And then verse 14, here's what happens. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Verse 15, but do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant, there's the word covenant, with the house of David, verse 16, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So these two men had a very strong spiritual love and and a relationship with each other. And it broke through all the turmoil that was going on around him. I mean, here's Jonathan's dad trying to kill David. And here's Jonathan telling David, hey, I'll protect you. I'll tell you if he's coming. I'll, I'll I'll do all that for you. I may lose my life in the process. I probably will. But that's okay. That's That's the kind of relationship they had. At this point in chapter 9, no one in their right mind would say, David, I think you need to go reach out to this grandson and befriend him. That would just not be a wise thing to do. If anything, you would seek him out and kill him. That's what you would do, get rid of him, because he's viewed as the enemy. And and what's interesting is that grace comes through covenants, and and the important thing to understand here, and it it parallels our own salvation, is, you know, we all kind of understand what a covenant is, right? It was a promise between two individuals in, in the Old Testament. You know, they would cut up some animals, lay them on each side of the path, and maybe two turtle doves, and they'd walk down the center, and, you know, they'd make it a, a formal thing, and it was a binding covenant, and that's the kind of covenant that they had. Well, this is 15 years later. I mean, David didn't have to even think about this. I mean, why was this on his radar? Because, as we know, he wanted to do what was pleasing to the Lord. He knew that he had made this promise, and he wanted to make it right. He wanted to do the right thing. If there's anybody still alive in the house of Saul, and he makes it very clear, I'm not going to out to kill him. I want to show him kindness because of my relationship with Jonathan. That's what he says in verse 1. And then it says, well, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And so Ziba was Saul's servant, kind of caretaker. And he was probably taking care of all of Saul's property at the time. And he was benefiting, clearly. I mean, he was a very wealthy man. Because Mephibosheth, he was crippled. He couldn't really do anything. So here's Ziba kind of feeling, well, I'll take care of you, Mephibosheth. But he's living off of Saul's, Saul's property, all the stuff he had, and he was very rich. The Bible says that Saul was very rich. And so this guy, for himself... It tells us that he had 15 sons, 20 servants. I mean, you know, that's, each, each one had a servant. You could say that plus some. So, you know, he was a very wealthy individual, but he got his wealth from someone else, quote, serving the house of Saul. The interesting thing about covenants is that covenants do not secure God's love. They don't secure God's love. 
what they do is they reveal God's love to us. Um, Okay, the covenant did not cause this spiritual love between David and Jonathan. It wasn't like they woke up one day and said, okay, let's do a covenant. And then after the covenant, oh man, I just love you, I'll give my life up. No, it wasn't that at all. They had love for each other way before the covenant ever came around. And a matter of fact, the covenant came out of their love for one another. It's a sign of God's love. The covenant did not cause the spiritual love between David and Jonathan. That love existed long before the covenant was ever even a result. The the covenant was a result of their relationship. And it's the same way with Israel. When you look at the covenants in the Old Testament with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, what do they do? They demonstrate God's love for his people that was stated even back in, in Deuteronomy 7. All right? And so out of God's love for Israel... That's why these covenants came to pass. He didn't say, I hate Israel, now I have a covenant with Israel, now I love them. (laughs) And it's the same way with us. In the New Testament, we have the new covenant, right? When did God choose to love us? When did God choose to set his love on us? Before the foundation of the... Has the cross happened? Was the new covenant in effect yet? No. God loved us long before Christ ever hung on the cross. See, that's significant to understand because it really helps us understand verses that tell us that, you know, it's not because of your good works you're saved. It's not because of who you are. It's because God divinely set his love on you before you're even a you, (laughs) before the foundation of the world. But his love for us was secured by Christ on the cross. It was out of his love for us For God so what? Loved the world that he gave. You know, he didn't look at a bunch of miserable people and say, well, Jesus, you got to go down there and die so I can love these people. No. And sometimes that's how we operate as human beings. But that's not the kind of love that God has. Long before the foundation of the world, God set his love on us. And then Christ came to earth, led a sinless life, died a cruel death, secured our salvation on the cross, took his sin, took our sin upon himself, even though he had no sin at all. He was perfect in every way. And yet he was treated as an individual who committed every sin of every person who would ever put their faith in Christ, even though he was perfect. He was sinless. But our sins were imputed to him. They were, they were set upon Christ. And what did we get out of that? We got his what? His righteousness, even though we didn't deserve it. So we're held secure because of that covenant. But that's not why God loves us. He loves us because he chose to love us. Divinely so. And so when you look at this chapter, you say, well, okay, so I understand David made this covenant all the way back with Jonathan, but why 15 years later? Why why didn't he do this earlier? I don't know. Maybe it was all the wars that he was, you know, fending off Jonathan's. I don't know why this didn't happen earlier. But the fact of the matter is, the important thing here is that it happened. In other words, David was a man of his word. He made this covenant with Jonathan. And he said, okay, I'm going to keep this. So if there's any way I can keep this, I've got to find out if there's anyone still alive. And this Ziba guy comes along and says, well, there's this guy, Mephibosheth. This crippled grandson of Saul, 
Jonathan's son, and he, he is alive and finds out where he's at, and he wants to make it right. And he searches out where he's at and brings him before himself. The neat lesson here is that after all this time, 15-some years, I mean, David's kind of established his kingship with people. It's not like people are questioning anything at this point. He didn't have to do this. If this were to happen in a worldly setting, people would say, are you nuts? You don't go looking for, you know, that would be the worst thing you could do. And if you do look for him, you kill him right away. But that's not what his intention was. And what it shows you is that after all this time, it doesn't matter how many steps you may have made away from God. It doesn't matter. It just takes one step to go back. That's God's grace. Can you imagine how hard it would be to be saved if God said, now you've got to make up all for all the lost ground. <laughs> you know, you've, you've, you've run for me for 20 years. It's not going to be as easy as just turning around and saying, yes, Lord. No, I'm going to make you grovel. He doesn't do that. That's God's grace. See, and that's what David really is expressing here. He's, he's saying, hey, I made this promise, and I'm going to carry this thing out. Verse 2, when Ziba tells him that, hey, you know, there's this grandson around. Look at Ziba's attitude. He comes before David, who's king. Are you Ziba? Yeah, I am your what? What does he say? I am your servant. Why is he saying that? Whose house is he from? He's from the house of Saul. Hey, I mean, acknowledge your kingship. You know, he doesn't want to up, upset his, this apple cart. Why? Because he's got all this, he's got a fortune. He's basically got everything that King Saul had at his feet. And he's utilizing it. And so he doesn't want to make waves here. And he's like, hey, I'm your servant. And the king said, well, all right, is there anyone here in the house of Saul? I want to show kindness to him. And, well, there's still this son of Jonathan. And I bet you Zeba's thinking, you know what? This is too good to be true. Because if David has an intention, he says he doesn't want to harm him. He wants to bless him for God's sake. Well, guess what? I'm kind of Mephibosheth's caretaker. I'm going to get blessed. This is great. I mean, this stupid king's going to give me his stuff now, too. That's probably what he's thinking. He said, well, there's this still the son of Job, and he's crippled in the feet. The king said to him, where is he? Tells him where he's at. Lo, Debar. Now, by every logical right, and this is the second point there, grace is given to enemies. Grace is given to enemies. That's what Mephibosheth was, should have been to David. He should have been his enemy. He was a threat. Ishbosheth was a rival king. He's dead. He's out of the way. Well, there's still one left, this Mephibosheth, and then he's got a son. So if I wipe those two out, then we're good. I'll retain my kingship. That's what a normal king would do to hold claim to his throne. So he should rightfully wipe all these people out, but he doesn't do that. He gives his enemy grace based on this promise that he made. If you look there in verses 7, 10, 11, and 13, you see it over and over. Mephibosheth is going to eat at my table. Mephibosheth is going to eat at my table. He's going to eat at my table. As a matter of fact, he even tells Ziba, he says, hey, you know what? Um, King David sent, he brought him, verse 5, and he brought him from this place called Lodabar. And, and Lodabar basically means, in the original language, no pasture. So this nurse had the wisdom, I think. Because she's, remember, she's trying to protect Mephibosheth. 
his whole family just got wiped out. They were all assassinated. So she's taking this little five-year-old kid who's now crippled because she tripped and broke his legs, but still she wants to care for him. So she goes to kind of the furthest place that no one would want to go to. It's like saying, hey, you want to take a vacation to the Dead Sea or to over down to the Salton Sea in, in Indio, you know, where it stinks and it's hot. and this. No, you wouldn't want to spend time there. It's not a nice place or Death Valley. Okay, you might want to go visit, but you're not going to spend weeks there, vacationing there. That just wouldn't be a place that you'd want to go. Why? Because it's desolate. Well, low to bar means no pasture. It's like saying, hey, uh, we're going to move to a place and, and basically they don't have any water, they don't have any jobs, and there's no housing available. Oh, that's, that's a smart move. <laughs> All right? But she knew that, I think, if, if Mephibosheth got out of the way, he could fly under the radar, save his life. He wasn't really concerned about things at this point. And so they... They moved way out there in the middle of nowhere. And so God gives his enemies grace, and it's a picture of God's grace through King David. And so, verse 6, Mephibosheth shows up, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. He comes to King David, and look at what he does. He falls on his face before the king, and he pays homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. That was just kind of the greeting before a powerful king. And David rightfully said to him, Do not fear. Because this poor guy probably thought, Yeah, he's going to cut my head off. <laughs> I mean, I'm done. You know, he found me after all these years. He's going to probably wipe my family out just like the other ones did. And he says, Don't, don't fear. And remember, here is... Mephibosheth, before this, this powerful king, he was born in this kind of rejected family. <laughs> the whole line was rejected. Um, he, was the, this, he was the son of a prince, yet he was living in, you might say, independence on others far away from Jerusalem. And it's really, it's really a picture of us as lost sinners. It's really a picture of us that are born in sin. We're born into a rejected line, Adam's line, right? We don't have a hope. What are we born in? We're born into condemnation. And yet, God reaches out to us in grace. Um, Mephibosheth couldn't walk. So it tells us there he fell before the king. That doesn't, it was just, he's paying homage. He's being polite. It didn't mean, you know, like he tripped. I heard one guy said, you, you, you could probably say that he didn't have a leg to stand on. But he goes, I, I wouldn't say that. But, you know, and that's true. I mean, you know, he was crippled. But it's really a picture of everybody outside of Christ today. They're lost because of Adam's sin. Well, they can't walk so as to please God. It's, it's impossible. And instead of walking in obedience, sinners walk. What do they do? Ephesians tells us according to the, what? the course of this world. They may try to walk to please God, but the Bible says no amount of self-effort will allow that to happen. It won't save you. And this is where Mephibosheth was. He had to have somebody care for him constantly. He was crippled. He was missing the best. He was in that low-to-bar place, no pasture, no place for his soul to be satisfied. And that's where a sinner is. A sinner is in a place where... 
Jesus describes them as what? As hungry? As thirsty? Basic needs are being unmet. And they think somehow the world is going to satisfy them, but it can't. The pleasures of the world cannot satisfy. And really, I think Mephibosheth probably would have perished without David's help. I don't think we would have ever heard of this guy if it wasn't for God working through David to show God's grace to him. And he reached out and he helped him. He was in a tragic situation. He couldn't care for him. When we go to India, sometimes, you know, you'll be walking down the road and you'd see people on the street. And sometimes it's hideous even to look at them, to be honest with you. Their, their legs are mandled, mangled. They're pointing every different direction. Their hands are, and they're just begging. And I'm like, who puts these people here? How do they get here? Do they crawl here? You know, and you see them by the dozens on this. I mean, just all over. And it's, it breaks your heart because they can't care for themselves. And that's really a picture of that lost sinner who's in that tragic situation of their fallenness, of their sinfulness. They're, they're steeped in sin and they can't walk to please God if, if they had to. They're separated from that relationship with God. They're under God's condemnation. They can't help themselves. What do they need? They need someone to come along to show them grace. That's what Mephibosheth needed, and that's what David did. And in verse, verse 8, he says, He paid him homage, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Why would Mephibosheth have such a low self-esteem, to put it in today's vernacular? Well, first of all, he was crippled. He had to have somebody probably help him constantly. Plus, he knew there was a death threat out on his on his head. I mean, if somebody found out that there was a rival possible king alive, I mean, I don't know if David would have done anything, but I guarantee you one of his guards, one of his helpers would, hey, we got to go take this guy out. That's because that's what they did. That was just commonplace. And so he's thinking, okay, you know what? (laughs) I'm a dead dog anyway. (laughs) What do you want with me now? Just get it over with. And look at what what David does. And this is just a picture of of God's grace to the excessive amount. In verse 9, Then the king called back Ziba, Saul's servant. And I imagine this, Ziba coming back in going, Okay, man, what's the deal? How much are you going to give me this time, you know? Saul gave me all this and trusted. What are you going to, you know, sure, I'll care for the little crippled kid. He's kind of, you know, no threat. I got a lot of servants to take care of him. You know, I just want the, the goods. What, what am I getting out of this? And you notice it says there, he's Saul's servant. He's Saul's servant. But he previously, remember, declared himself as whose servant? David's servant, right? When he came before, what, what do you, I'll do whatever you want, king. See, he's just looking out for himself. He doesn't care about Mephibosheth. He doesn't care about anybody. Well, he calls this guy back and he says, you know what, here's what we're going to do, Ziba. All that belonged to Saul, everything, not some of it, everything, and to all his house, guess what? I'm giving it to this crippled kid. I'm giving it to Mephibosheth. Can you imagine what this, this guy's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait, Wait, what? This can't be. Well, you did say you're my servant, right? So you kind of got to carry out what I'm telling you to do. I'm the king. In verse 10, he says, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. This is grace to Mephibosheth in 
excess and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. And I think David knew what was going on here. I think David understood that maybe Mephibosheth's basic needs were being cared for, but I'm sure that he was cloistered off in some room or whatever, uh, and Ziba's other sons were benefiting a lot more probably than Mephibosheth from all of Saul's goods. And I think David understood that. And I think he really set this guy up. And he's, he's probably processing this as he's standing before King David thinking, okay, everything I have is going to be gone, but I still have my life. I just liked what David said, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. And then he says, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. In other words, he's going to become part of my family. I'm going to invite him in to our royal table. This, this kid that you've probably pushed away from your table. I'm going to invite him to my table. And then it says, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's why we know he was so wealthy off this. But he values his life like anyone does. So Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And I bet you that, you know, we have some, maybe some dialogue here that's not written in the text for us. Because, you know, David's not going to stay here in Lodabar, right? He's not going to hang out here in this place of nowhere. He's going to get back to, to what he's doing. And, and I imagine Ziba thinking, okay, as soon as this guy's gone, man, I'm going back to normal. And I, I can just imagine King David saying, and, and by the way, I have ways to watch. I, I know what's going to be going on here. So I see what you've done up till now. D- don't, don't cross me on this, Ziba. You better do what I'm telling you to do if you don't. How many sons do you have? You know what my reputation is when people cross me? So I, I'm sure that there was maybe some threats there that kept Ziba in line. But he says, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. There it is again. But it says like one of the king's sons. So he actually brought him in to the family. And then this is another mind-blowing thing. It's, it's, it's kind of the idea that, that grace is counter-cultural. As I said before, you know, this, is, this is uncommon. Even if it was just Mephibosheth, for the king to reach out to somebody who is in the line of Saul and to benefit them or bless them in any way, would just be counterintuitive. It would almost be wrong. It would be like, it'd be like treasonous within their structure because you're, you're giving the opportunity for someone to possibly overthrow your own kingship down the road. And you're going to find out this comes back to bite David as we read through the rest of the book. It does. But David's doing, you know, he's doing the right thing here. He's keeping his promise, his covenant with Jonathan. And he finds there in, in verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son. So now there's not just one, there's two in the line. But he continues to show grace, which is totally countercultural. And then in the end there, verse, uh, it says, all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. I mean, <laughs> Think of those poor folks. I mean, they're living high on the hog and all of a sudden the table's turned real quick. 
and they're the servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he ate at David's table. So he actually took Mephibosheth back with him. And it says he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I mean, can you imagine for Ziba and his family, they're out there harvesting the ground. They know in the back of their mind, David's people are watching. One misstep, and they're, they're like, you know, their heads are on the, on the ground. Um, and they're doing all this work so that the master's grandson may have bread to eat. But guess what? He's not even benefiting from what they're doing because where is he? Yeah, he's in Jerusalem eating at the king's table. I mean, what a slap in the face. And it says there at the end, now he was lame in both of his feet. So grace is something that comes through the covenant. It's given to enemies. Uh, you know, I, I never thought about this to this week, but you know, one of the qualifications to be saved, one of the qualifications to be a Christian, one of the qualifications to come to the table of grace, one of the qualifications is you have to be God's enemy. You have to be his enemy. If you're not his enemy, there's no need for his grace. But the Bible tells us that what, what, we've all fallen short. We've all sinned in some myriad of ways. So we've all breached that, that line with God. We're all fallen. And so the Bible says that we're all God's enemies. But by the grace of God, he reaches out and he sets his love upon us. And then he sent his son and he established the new covenant to secure that love. Not just so the time that we behave, but forever. For all eternity, it's done. It's completed. And that's kind of the picture here in, in chapter 9. It's a picture of God's grace. God's grace brings us to the king's table. There's no way that you can be born at the king's table. You know, there's no way you deserve to be at the king's table. I mean, Mephibosheth deserved to be dead, basically. But he was really a picture of of, of God's grace and as it came through David. And grace brings us to the king's table. So you see Mephibosheth as this lost sinner, but you also see David, on the other hand, as this gracious savior. And it parallels our salvation so wonderfully because David is the one who what? He made the first move. It wasn't Mephibosheth crying out to David saying, hey, I want to make things right. Can I eat at your table? No. David sought this out based on a covenant with Jonathan, Jonathan that he had. And David sent for Mephibosheth just as God sent Christ to this earth. What does Luke 19.10 tell us? To what? To seek and to save the lost, that which is lost. He seeks us. We don't seek God. The Bible says no one seeks after God. There's people that maybe think they're seeking after God, but they're not. Or scripture's a lie. So David made the first move here. And it has to be that way. I mean, picture Mephibosheth. You know, can you imagine him coming before David Saying, you know, come on, I'm going to fight you. He's a cripple. He, he was totally helpless. And so David reaches out to him, just like God reaches out to us when we're helpless. We're steeped in our sin. We're dead in our trespasses. We couldn't help ourselves if our lives depended on it. 
And all eternity depends on it. And we can't, still can't help ourselves. And so David acted for not his own sake, but he really acted for Jonathan's sake. It, it came out of this loving covenant that David made with Jonathan years before. I don't think David ever saw Mephibosheth before this point, yet he loved him for Jonathan's sake. You know, we're not saved because of our own merit. We're not saved because we do something right. We're saved, what? Based on the merit of Christ. We're saved because of the sake of Christ. We're forgiven for his sake, Ephesians 4.32 tells us. We're accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6 tells us. We're part of that everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13 tells us. That the Father should save for Jesus' sake all that trust in him. And it was also, this, this whole deal was an act of kindness. Verse 3, David calls it the kindness of God. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Titus 3, 4-7, tells us that Christ shows us his kindness in order to save us. David's throne was a throne of grace, not a throne of justice. I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing. Um, Mephibosheth had no claim upon David. He had had absolutely no case to present before David. I mean, if he would have went to David and said, you know what, I want justice, (laughs) what would have happened? He would have had his head cut off as soon as those words came out. Exactly. And see, so many times we forget when we come before God, we do not want justice. We want God's grace. And then you notice that David called for him personally. That kind of same thing with our own salvation. And you notice that he came. Mephibosheth could have very easily said, I'm not going. I mean, he could have, but he didn't. David sent a servant to bring him, but the servant then stepped out of the way to make room for the king. Nobody is saved by a pastor or a preacher or an evangelist. All that servant can do is usher the sinner into the presence of Christ. It's Christ who saves people. We, we, we have to remind ourselves of that. And he saves people when they come under the hearing of his truth. That's why it's so important. You know, people say, well, you know, what's a, what's a good plan for evangelism? A good plan for evangelism is to share the word of Christ with those who haven't come to Christ yet in some form or fashion. Whether it's bringing them to a teacher or teaching them yourself. I just shared a couple of weeks ago with an individual who's searching. I said, you know what? Have you ever read through one of the Gospels? No. I said, well, don't you like to read? Oh, yeah, I love to read. I said, well, you're missing it. Why don't you start reading prayerfully through the Gospel of John? I challenge you to read through. I dare you to read through the Gospel of John in a prayerful way. And you ask God to reveal his son to you. And you just sit back and you watch what happens. David called them personally. And then, in the end, David took him into his own family. Just like sinners today, Mephibosheth wanted to work I think, his way into forgiveness. Um, if you look at verse 6, he came and he fell on his face and paid homage. And he says, Behold, I'm your servant. I want to earn your grace, king. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. He says the same thing in verse 8. He paid homage. But David said, No, it's not going to work that way. I mean, what can you do anyway? <laughs> you know, you, you can't even stand up. What could you do for me? You could absolutely do nothing for me, Mephibosheth. But you know what? I'm going to make you part of my family. <laughs> I'm going to bring you in 
just like one of my other sons, and, and bring you in and, 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 and treat you as part of the family. You're going to eat at my table. I mean, remember the prodigal son. He wanted to be a servant too. See, no one can earn salvation. You can't get salvation by earning it. It tells us now we are the sons of God. How? By the grace of God. It's not something we earn. You see what David did there. He spoke peace to Mephibosheth. He said, fear not. These were words of grace to this poor, trembling, crippled man that thought his life was about ready to end. See, that's what, that's what Christ says to every believing sinner. Fear not. Don't be fearful. Do not fear. That's why Romans 8, 1. What's it tell us? There's now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Why, why are we fearful of things like that? We're fearful what people think. We're fearful what they'll think of us if we say something. If we witness for the Lord, well, maybe we'll get persecuted. Why are we fearful? See, it's through the word of God before us, through the spirit of God within us. That's, that's how we experience the peace of God. Um, and so David spoke peace to him. God speaks peace to our hearts when we come to Christ. You, know, you will never, ever, ever experience any peace with God. He will continue to be your enemy for all eternity until you come in the prescribed fashion that he's laid out for us in the New Testament, and that's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not rocket science. God basically says, you know what? You're so lost, you can't help yourself. You need my help. You need my son. That's why I called him a savior. You know, if you're drowning in a pool, you'd be foolish just to say, I guess I'm just going to drown even though there's a lifeguard right there. I'm not going to cry out. I don't want to embarrass myself. God forbid I should say, hey, I need some help. I can't swim. I'd be really embarrassed if people found out I couldn't swim. So I'll just drown. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And David provided also for his every need. He lived in this place where there was no pasture. Now he's living in Jerusalem at the king's table. Ziba and all his family became servants to Mephibosheth. David gave Mephibosheth all the inheritance that rightfully, by the way, belonged to him. And that's what Christ does for us. He satisfies those spiritual, those those material needs in our families because we're part of his family. He's given us, Ephesians 1 says, an eternal inheritance. 1 Peter 1, Colossians 1. You know, if God were to give us our rightful inheritance, what we would inherit is hell. That's what we would inherit. That's what the Bible says. But because of his grace, he he chose us to share in an inheritance with him and in, in, in Romans eight seventeen, it even calls us joint heirs with the Savior, with Christ. So he doesn't just say, yeah, you know, you can sit at my table. He's saying, no, you're part of my team now. You're, 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 you're joint heirs. We're, we're, we're knit together. And also David protected him from judgment. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, when we get there, you'll see God sent this famine in the land to chastise his people. And when David sought God's will, it became evident that the famine came because of the way that Saul had treated the Gibeonites. David offers protection there. So, you know, when you, when you think of Mephibosheth, think of God's table of grace. 
and what it takes to be there, what it takes to accept that invitation, what it takes to sit down at that table of grace. You know, it takes that, that covenant. It takes the understanding that you're an enemy of God. It takes the fact that, you know what, you understand that God's grace is excessive, that this is something that's counterintuitive. Most people, when they come to Christ, say, oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Most people I've witnessed to the first time, they go, wait, wait, what? Okay, God wants to give me forgiveness for what? What, do I have to join your church? What, I got to give you all my money? What, what, how much does it cost? No. It's grace. It's, it's a free gift. You just have to accept it. And people can't get that through their heads. And even though our salvation, Christ paid an extreme price for our salvation, right? Don't think our salvation's free. It's not. But it's Christ paid the price. You know, if I said, hey, I got a Lamborghini out there for one of you. You know, I, I, I didn't manufacture this in my garage. You know, I went to that store down in El Camino that sells those really nice cars and bought it. And then I took you out there and said, here you go, here's the key. You know, you wouldn't understand. Wow, that, that's an extreme amount of money that you just invested and you're going to give this to me? Are you serious? Where are the cameras? No, no, it's just a gift. See, that 10 times, 100 times, a million times over, that's what God has done with us. He's given us a grace that we don't deserve. And that grace brings us to his table for all eternity. What a glorious thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's close with a word of prayer and then let's see if anybody has any questions. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your picture of grace through David and through his treating of Mephibosheth and this whole situation. And, and Lord, we know that from here on, this, <laughs> this book kind of gets, uh, um, it, it doesn't improve. Let's just say it that way. Uh, a lot of people do a lot of wrong things. And, and Lord, and yet your grace is still present through it all. And Lord, that's not unlike our own lives. Father, at times, our lives are far from what you call them to be, what you expect them to be. We fail, we falter, we sin. And yet your gracious hand is always there to help us up, to forgive us, to encourage us to move on in our journey of faith. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I just pray that they would understand that there clearly is an eternity that awaits us after this life we live. We don't just die and go in the ground or go in the air or anywhere else. Our our eternal soul goes somewhere. And there's a place... It's called hell, where eternal souls go that have not put their faith or trust in your provision of salvation through Christ. Lord, we don't want anybody. We do not desire, you don't desire anyone to go there. And so, Lord, that is why you brought your son into this world to live a perfect life for 30-some years and then to die upon a cross and to take upon him all the sin that we would ever effect here in this world he he took that upon himself and he paid the price in full and it's just us reaching out and taking that gift because you offer salvation through that you offer forgiveness you offer restoration you offer us sound emotions and sound minds but it all comes through christ and lord we just have to ask the question are we willing to give up our own kingdom for yours? 
Or are we going to dig our heels in and continue to desire to rule and reign in our own lives, even though we know that it's just for this life? Because the Bible very clearly says, sooner or later, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. It's so much better to do that on this side of eternity than the next. And so we pray for our community. We pray for people who don't know Christ. We pray that we would have a burden to reach out to them in a gracious way with the gospel. That We would invite people to hear the word of God taught and uh, just bring them under however we can the, 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 the sound of your word, your truth. And Lord, that that would affect change in their thinking, in their hearts and that you would transform them, that you would save them, that you would cause them to turn from their sin to the Savior. Lord, we thank you, and we just pray that you would take us all home safely tonight. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.